Heavenly Father, I thank you for gathering each and every one of us by the power of your sovereign hand in this place for the expressed purpose of lifting up and praising your holy name, of setting our mind and heart and affections on the work of Jesus Christ and what is purchased for us in that transaction on the cross. We celebrate today that our unity is made possible in the blood that was shed on Calvary. We rejoice in the fact that preserved before us today is a record of your loving kindness towards your redeemed in these pages that we will read today. And although we'll spend just a little time in one corner of your word, we know That just a phrase here and there, Lord, has proven sufficient food for us to chew and meditate on. Sometimes, God, for weeks and months at a time, we're asking you for a larger appetite still to digest the glorious truths of Scripture. Thank you for this time, Lord. I pray that as this prayer is answered, only you would get the glory for using an unlikely vessel like myself and for making fertile the soil of the hearts of all of the hearers to receive the word of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning's message comes from Matthew chapter 17. Turn there with me if you would. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. Matthew 17, I know last week I announced that we would be in Matthew 18 this week, but I felt guilty for passing over a section of Scripture rich in material that had been overlooked in our Matthew series so far. At least that's the way it felt to me as I went back over it. So hopefully upon the Holy Spirit's prompting, I've decided to retread some of that territory in Matthew 18 and have reserved continuing in Matthew I'm sorry, 17 and reserved continuing Matthew 18 for next week. The title of this morning's message, therefore, is The Valley of Transfiguration. I thought we would cover the segment of time, the event, immediately on the heels of the transfiguration that happened on the mountain where Christ appeared with Elijah and Moses. What happened immediately after that? Well, Matthew 17 records and verses 14 through the end of the chapter. So would you stand with me and let's read these verses together in Matthew's gospel again chapter 17 verses 14 through 27 we read. And when they came to the crowd a man came up to him and kneeling before him said Lord have mercy on my son for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Verse 22, As they gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There is a parallel text that we'll spend some time in 
Lord willing, in this service, in this message, in Exodus chapter 32, which also involves a mountain, which also involves a glorious revelation, which also involves a mediatorial mediatorial servant of God, namely Moses, who brings the Word of God to God's people, and upon the descent from that moment of revelation to his interaction with the crowd, a discouraging event certainly is found to be taking place. In fact, this moment in covenant history, in the history of the nation of Israel, could perhaps be described as the most discouraging Yet typical and telling, one of the most discouraging, typical, and telling scenes in the history of Israel's existence, at least as a freed nation, after she had left the bonds of Egypt and entered into the glorious constitution of one nation under God, as it were, directly ruled by God's sovereign dictate word in hand through the servant Moses and later the 70, and yet at this moment we see what appears to be the situation utterly falling apart. Upon Moses' descent from the mountain of the law, revelation, the scene that greets him in the valley causes his anger, that is Moses' anger, to burn hot against his nation. Verse 19, Exodus 32. The Lord's wrath in the same chapter is also recorded as burning hot enough to consume the entire nation in verse 10, Exodus 32. This stiff-necked people is the same people, at least in principle, that we see described in Matthew 17 as a faithless and twisted generation. The degenerate and reprobate heart and mind of sinful man is evident in the condescension scenes of both of these records. In the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ's glory had been shown and revealed to surpass that of both Elijah and Moses. And yet even at this moment, when he descends from that moment, from that mountain, he is greeted by a people he describes as wicked, indeed, as we mentioned, faithless and twisted. Matthew 17, 17. By this measure it would seem That history just repeats itself. If we look at it at first glance with hopeless despair. But I'd have you notice, and this is what we'll explore in some depth this morning, I would have us notice today that there is not just striking parallels in these two texts, but also striking contrast. As we behold Christ as the author of Hebrews describes Him in distinction to Moses, Hebrews 3, verses 5 through 6 says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. In Matthew 17, we behold the glorious distinction of Christ as the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased, and He speaks May we listen to Him. Matthew 17, back up a few verses and read with me verse 5. He, that is Peter, was still speaking when behold, now we're recounting that moment of transfiguration, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This morning I have a heading for four parallels that we see in this passage that illustrate the contrast and the comparisons between the record of the mountain of glory in the Old Covenant and this mountain of glory in the New. Here's the heading. Understanding post-transfiguration events illustrated by contextual parallels. It's a little bit wordy. Let me say it again. Understanding the post-transfiguration events, the events that immediately follow the moment of transfiguration are significant. And we can see why they're significant as we consider some parallels contextually, both immediately 
within the context of Matthew 17 and also in the greater body of Scripture. And primarily today we'll see it in light, that truth in light of Exodus 32. Let me go over them briefly, then we'll cover them in some detail. First of all, fire and water. The sons of Adam versus sons of God. Fire and water are two ways that the demoniac son of the father that came to Christ, desperate asking for healing, tried to commit suicide to destroy himself. Or, perhaps more accurately, the demon inside him tried to destroy the life, his host. So let us see what we can learn from that imagery. Secondly, there's an understanding of post-transfiguration events that is illustrated by the contextual parallel of faithless and twisted generation. The condescension scene, the scene of coming down or condescending that meets Christ, even as the scene, in some ways similar, in some ways different, met Moses in the Old Testament. Thirdly, mustard seed and mountain. Jesus uses two analogies once again to describe faith and describe the effects of faith. Mustard seed and mountain. So we will learn from this something about kingdom faith if we set our mind to meditate on these truths. And fourthly and finally, Sons and taxes, Jesus and governing authorities. There's a distinction between average and mere citizens that Jesus makes in this requirement that he pay tax and those who are sons of the king. So what can we learn from these parallels in context? First of all, let's consider fire and water. Sons of Adam versus sons of God. Again, Matthew 17, we read in verses 14 through 16, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, so this is a man, dire desperate need, coming to Christ, saying, verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire, and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. First of all, I want to recall to your attention under this point right here that we can note in the context, parenthetically here, that contextual weight is added in this event that will help illustrate and underscore the message of discourse number four, which opens in Matthew chapter 18. Last, or when we were in this passage the last time, in our Sanctity of Life message, We identify it as a theme in the first 14 verses of Matthew 18 as Jesus begins this sermon discourse that it is the mark of the Christian church. It is a mark of the Christian church of all ages that we reach out with compassion to children and the childlike. Chapter 18, verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here's Jesus calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. We talked about the least of these. That idea is connected to the greatest of consequences. This is how seriously the calling of believers to children and the childlike are. It says, for instance, in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now when we see what this demon now, comparing what I just read to this event, when we see what this demon had done to this child, we can see the league of Satan. Those who are in league with Satan, the evidence of their wickedness is to deceive, to neglect, to corrupt, to trouble, and to spiritually blind those who are vulnerable, and especially children. When we see the context here, that the evidence of the demonic is to control and to blind and to render this child utterly, just utterly left captive to violent and hurtful and sinful uh, influences, it reminds us and illustrates that it reminds us of the severity of understanding and being obedient and faithful to teaching the Word of God with diligence, nurture, admonition, and truth. Because this story further illustrates the severity of the opening theme of discourse number four. What are the effects of Satan 
on those who have been overcome by him in their mind, it is to destroy them, to disable them, to blind, to corrupt, and to deceive them, and utterly destroy them as is pictured here. Let us never be found in league with the enemy where we would be guilty of doing something so demonic as influencing an impressionable mind in a way that would deceive, neglect, corrupt, or spiritually blind them. Remember, the lives and souls of those that we influence in the kingdom of God raises the stakes to the uttermost. It is a severe and sober call to understand and accurately represent the gospel whether you're a pastor, whether you're a parent, whoever you are. Once you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a responsibility to bear that testimony in truth. So first of all, that point I wanted to make in passing underneath this distinction or contrast that we see of sons of Adam and sons of God. Those that come to Christ as sons of Adam come in bondage. But there's a contrast, and that is the glorious Son of God, who was born into this world, fully God and fully man, namely Christ, uncorrupted from the grip of original sin, and fully law-keeping and gloriously holy, as He is revealed to us. This is the second point under this first, or the second subpoint under this first point: Son versus Son. Notice the difference here. There are two sons presented in this same section of Scripture. The first one is presented by God the Father as the beloved, glorious, divine Son. It says again in verse 5, This, God the Father speaking, the celestial announcement heralded in the ears of the onlookers, the three representative apostles here from the Lord of glory, from God Almighty, God the Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Here is truth. Here is revelation. Here is salvation. Here is authority. Here is the Word of God. Yet contrast that picture of revelatory authority, power, and glory with the pain and the bondage of the next presentation of a son in this passage. Verse 14. When Jesus came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeled before him saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. In Luke chapter 9, we find that this was indeed his only child. Thus, incorporating the harmony of the Gospels, we could say it as follows. Lord, have mercy on my only son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Now for those who are born of men, for all who are born in Adam, this is our plight. We are sons demonically under the influence of Satan and born captive to our flesh and sin until we meet the pure Son, divine Son, holy Son, the revelatory Son, the Son who has the power of deliverance and salvation in His hand and sets us free. Son of Adam meets Son of God representatively in this text as a glorious picture of deliverance and salvation. And here, even in the way events unfold, we have a representation of the gospel in this scene before us, in this narrative before us. The desperate, the bound, the demon-possessed, the distraught, the lost, without healing individual has been set free as he encounters in a relationship now with the Son of God, the healing power of salvation revealed in Christ alone. This is one way that this section of Scripture in Matthew 17 is so distinctly different from Exodus 32. Moses was an impressive individual. He was deserving of a lim- of limited honor to be sure. He was a faithful servant as Hebrews declares, but there was one thing Moses could never do. Moses could never deliver an epileptic son from his malady. Moses could never by his own intrinsic holiness and authority set a single person free 
from a single effect of sin. Moses was a representative mediator, but himself a desperate sinner. But the one who appeared on this mountain appeared in transfigured form, manifesting his pre-incarnate glory, and in his touch was the power to deliver, to heal, and to set free. Moses' office surpassed and fulfilled in glorious revelation, not just by a testimony of his words, but by a demonstration of his works. And this is a powerful truth in the text. Finally, let us notice, again, fire and water is this parallel I want to draw out because it's meaningful, symbolically laden with meaning scripturally. If we read again in this passage in verse 15, the Father astutely declares and for our benefit reveals what this demon has tried to do with his son. He says in verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Into the fire and into the water. If we look all throughout Scripture, but a great perfect summary for this truth is in 2 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6. That's that section where the apostle declares, this world that once was, was utterly destroyed by water. God instituted two mediums of judgment that are there declared in 2 Peter. The first is water, and he said, there's coming a second judgment by fire. So thus in Scripture we see two mediums that God employs in judgment, water and fire. And so when we see the symbolic significance then of this passage, we can read between the lines and realize that what is pictured here is a will bent towards judgment and destruction. This individual, this son, is so captive to sin that he throws himself, as it were, under the influence of the activity that he is totally given over to, his sin and in this demonic oppression, into the fire and into the water. That is, he is bent towards judgment. God had sovereignly preserved him up to this time. But this was an individual that was headed hell-bent for destruction. And the theological significance of fire and water remind us that when we read a passage of Scripture like this, we ought to see ourselves in this state indeed prior to coming to Christ. You and I, before we met the Lord, were hell-bent for judgment. We were marked by the judgment and the wrath of God as worthy of destruction and at enmity with the Lord and certainly in those counted in the camp that was described as stiff-necked in Exodus 32 and was described in this section as faithless, twisted, demon-possessed and bent in our nature towards judgment by fire and water, this example. But praise the Lord. We have been sovereignly set free. No less miraculous is your salvation than this moment of deliverance we see pictured right here. When you were brought into the kingdom, you were delivered from the judgment pictured by fire and water. I love the picture of baptism because it pictures us passing through in part. It symbolizes our passing through the waters of judgment in the safety such as that was provided the eight who were preserved through the waters of judgment in Noah's day and all who walk through the door, Jesus Christ, into our ark of salvation, His shed blood, pass through the fire and water of judgment into glorious communion with Christ. It is a, truly a picture of deliverance and salvation that transcends the need of just this one troubled individual here. We see pictured in Matthew 17 a metaphor for yours and my experience if you are in Christ today. Thus, understanding of these events is helpfully illustrated by these contextual parallels. Even the picture of judgment, fire and water, and this son of Adam, this son born under sin versus Jesus Christ, born righteous and holy. Secondly, this morning, understanding these post-transfiguration events illustrated by parallel, let's consider this term faithless and twisted that Christ uses in verse 17 
in relationship to the scene, I'm calling it the condescension scene, but it's this event and the people gathered in the scene that greets Christ that he arrives upon after descending the Mount of Transfiguration. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, if you would. Again, these parallels are gloriously striking. While you're turning to Exodus 32, let me briefly plug the beauty and the intricacy, the complexity and absolute miraculous nature of the Word of God. The more, I'm sure you found this to be true, I study the Word of God, the more detailed connections and the absolute beautiful tapestry of sovereign word that we see and the revealed truth of God tied together. What appears to our unguided eye with the Spirit not informing our reading as total morass of loose ends. When the Spirit begins to illumine to our eyes the beauty of Scripture, we see how they are actually woven together in a tapestry that is gloriously unveiled before our eyes. This is just one example of that concept available for us to peruse this morning as we compare the mountain experience and revelation experience of Moses with that of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Consider with me Exodus 32. We'll just touch on some select passages as we move through. Let's begin in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses... Go down to your people whom you have brought up of the land of Egypt, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt." Verse 9, and Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Verse 11, there's this dialogue going on between this mediator Moses, who was a provisional mediator, a type of Christ, but indeed himself a sinner, and the Father, Extremely interesting. And first of all, we see the character and attitude, the behavior, the predisposition, the sinful nature of the people that is wrath-deserving. But we also see this dialogue between God and the mediator Moses taking place at the same time. Verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? We have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. He makes an appeal to the covenant. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring that they and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, listen to this glorious mercy of the Lord revealed. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses makes an appeal to two things, the glory of Christ and his prior promised decree and covenant. The glory of God and covenant's sake, would you please stay your judgment? Later in the book of Romans, we see where this great problem or paradox or tension or pick the uh, troubling word, apparent contradictory situation is resolved. In other words, how could a just God stay His judgment at all? Well, the answer, brothers and sisters, to the salvation of those who were spared judgment at the time these words were written among the Israelites is the same answer For the reason why you and I are spared judgment is because that wrath was endured by someone else. Later we read that as Moses arrives on this scene, the scene as he condescends the mountain, that is characterized by idolatry and stiff-neckedness of the people. Verse 19, we pick up now on Moses' reaction. As soon as he, that is Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. 
And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Verse 20, he took the calf that had been made, that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Taste of your own medicine. Turning into a poison, forcing them to eat their idols, literally. Later in the same passage, verse 27, he said to them, that is, Moses declares to the Levites that are assembled by him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Moses returned to the Lord and said, verse 31, Alas, as people have sinned a great sin, they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people out of the place by which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit... I will visit their sin upon them when the Lord sent a plague. Then, verse 35, the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. By the time these judgments were dispensed, although they were particular and did not cover everybody, you would have considered it a great grace indeed if you would have escaped the sword or perhaps the poisoning effect of drinking literally the idol you had just worshipped, or the great plague that descended upon God's people. A remnant remained, but they escaped graciously, well-deserving judgment. Yet many, many fell by the sword indeed. That 3,000 and whatever number also died from other judgment means. In Exodus chapter 32, this stiff-necked, this faithless and twisted people became the brunt of God's anger and retributive punishment, at least in these particular instances we just read, when they were forced to consume the consequences of their idolatry, and when the Levites were commissioned to kill brothers, companions, neighbors, and 3,000 lie dead at the point of their sword. And when God actually ordained them for service, that is, He equipped the Levites to actually be judged credible for serving in His courts on behalf of the Lord by their faithfulness to be His instruments of judgment and slaughter 3,000 deserving sinners. There were shades of hope, however. Moses held out hope. He said, perhaps atonement is possible in verses 34 and 35. And so he reascended the mountain. Nevertheless, even after all these remedial measures were taken, in the end, we see, ironically, in the judgment of God, the same plight that the pagan nation who had kept them in bondage for 400 plus years visited them because they were deserving as idolatrous pagans of the plagues that had just torn Egypt to shreds. This is the representative judgment that the Old Testament records every sin truly deserves. Is there any escape? Yes, there is. Israel declared herself at this time certifiably an enemy of God. We and our sin are absolutely certifiably enemies of God. Those are some of the similarities or again some parallels better said between Exodus 32 and Matthew 17. Now having read those heavy that heavy record 
of what happened as a consequence that descended as a cloud of judgment upon the people and destroyed in a well-deserving wake of carnage many who had exalted themselves against the knowledge of God and worshipped the pagan idolatry of the nation who once enslaved them. As we consider that record, let us consider the difference now. The glorious, gracious, merciful difference between Exodus 32 and Matthew 17. Verse 16, And I brought him to your disciples, this man says to Jesus, they could not heal him. Jesus delivers this indictment by his words, verse 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. And now twice, he repeats this woe twice. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Does this not remind us of the twice repeated woe? Both the anger of God and the anger of Moses that was evident against the people at that moment of mount, mountain condescension, when he was greeted by stiff-necked people, faithless and twisted in their own sin. But notice the difference. Jesus rebuked him, that is, speaking to this boy. The demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. The disciples asked the reason why. Their attempts were Ill, ill-effective, but notice especially verses 22 and 23. Herein lies the difference. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When we ask this question, are we any less deserving? Or let's focus in on the context here. Is this crowd any less deserving than a sword that would kill 3,000? than a plague that would descend and destroy multitudes, than a poisonous concoction that they well deserved a taste of their own idolatrous medicine. What is the obvious answer? This group of people, this group of people in this room today, and that group of people are all in the same idolatrous boat. Each group is equally deserving of that kind of judgment. So what is the difference? What makes the difference in the plight of the 3,000 that were slaughtered that day, and not a one in this particular moment was killed by the fiery sword of Christ proceeding from his mouth and destroying his enemies. I'm telling you, there's a gospel picture here. The answer is in the answer to this question. Who is killed? Christ descends from the mountain. He's greeted by the same type of crowd, but the judgment is taken out on him. As they were gathering Galilee, Jesus said to him, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Because Jesus took the sword as it were, took the judgment as it were for us, that is why we can escape. In the events recorded here, we see the difference. We see the distinction. We see the glory of Christ. This mediator surpasses Moses. He can actually, in his own body and blood, make atonement for the people. Moses was desperate. He ran back up the mountain to see if, perchance, he could twist God's arm. He was frantic. Jesus was certain. He knew exactly what would cover their sin. And he announced it. He proclaimed it. He prophesied it. It would be his own body and blood, broken and shed for all who place their faith in Him. He declared this in Matthew 16, 21. When He said, again, moving back a few verses, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and and on the third day be raised. He declared this when He said in verse 9 of chapter 17, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. He declared these events in chapter 17, verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. But this suffering would mean the freedom, the deliverance, the salvation, and the purification the wiping away of the sins 
of His people. Praise His holy name. Understanding again these events that followed the Mount of Transfiguration, considering the parallels. Let us for a moment consider faith. The evidence of faith. Mustard seed and mountain, two parallel analogies that Jesus uses to describe kingdom faith. In the explanation graciously offered upon the disciples' question, why couldn't we do this, Lord? And Jesus answered, he says, verse 19, first of all, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because, in verse 20, of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This metaphor has parallels in the book of Matthew itself. That is the metaphor first of mustard seed. In Matthew 13, 31 through 32, Jesus described his own kingdom as being like a mustard seed, a diminutive seed. Yet the potential and power in that small planting is so bound up with energy that upon taking root it produces the absolute largest of all herbs, so big in fact it is often referred to as a tree. Here we have a picture of faith. Faith is not in essence small, but there is a smallness to the way that it takes root and then grows. The essence of faithlessness contextually is evident here. Also we see in the lack of gospel understanding. In other words, What was missing in the disciples' heart that rendered their prayers impotent and produced no fruit in their ministry as it were? Quote-unquote ministry trying to deliver this young man. Well, we see it before this event happened and we see it after in the context of Christ's delivering of the gospel. When he had said in verse 21 that we just read, from that time, he would go to the cross and then he would be raised. Listen to Peter's response in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. After this event takes place, Jesus reveals again, as we've mentioned, verse 22 and 23, The truth of the gospel, what he will endure, which is the key and the power to deliverance. He would go to the cross, he would be crucified, but he would be raised on the third day. And what is the response? Similar, again, in verse 23. And they were greatly distressed. So we see the essence of the lack of faith. There was not a gospel understanding. Many who were gathered here and some who even associated themselves with Christ, included in this term disciples, were not sure... Not exactly sure who that group was, but one thing we do know is more than likely, because of the context, they had no idea of the meaning of the cross. But when God, by His sovereign hand, plants that seed of faith in the heart of a believer, such that the cross is a realized truth, is a reality and a hope, and it is the substance of our identity, and we stake our claim, it might be just a simple confession and a basic understanding But that seed has power. The size is not diminutive in essence, that is faith, but referring to sovereignly decreed, the sovereignty decreed, sovereignly, excuse me, decreed process of growth. That is to say, just as the kingdom of God starts out as a seed, the kingdom of God is not insignificant, but God has decreed a process of growth. And in the same way, believer, The seed of faith that He has planted in you is not insignificant. But just as He has ordained His kingdom grow by starting as it were small and then blossoming and producing fruit, so will that seed of faith in your life blossom into evident fruit, fruit of the Spirit. Evident Spirit indwelling, overflowing in your life of repentance and faith lived out in gospel evidence in situations as you walk where He leads These are the metaphors and parallels. If you want to cross-reference another verse that illustrates this by contrast, turn to Acts 19, 13 through 17. We won't go there this morning. But in that passage, we have a demon-possessed individual, and there's these itinerant exorcists who do not know the Lord, but invoke His name. In other words, they associate with the name of Christ, they invoke the name of Christ, but they do not have faith in Jesus Christ, and it does not turn out well for them. 
What is the message? You can invoke the name of Christ, you can associate with Christ, but if you are not indwelled by Christ, you will become every bit overridden and destroyed by the demonic influences that you see in others, and they will soon overwhelm you. And so we see that faith is pictured here, and that's a glorious truth. Even though it starts small as a seed, it flourishes and produces fruit. But there's a second metaphor. We've considered seed, but also consider mountain. Jesus says, as evidence of faith, the following, you will say to this mountain, you will say to this mountain in verse 20, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I'd invite you to consider, in the broader context of Scripture, I've included something on the website for further study under excerpts. There's a number of references, such as Jeremiah 51, there for you to read, verses 24 through 64, Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 through 35, Isaiah 14, 13, Isaiah 54, 10 and 12, Ezekiel 6, 3 through 7, just to get a few references on record. Well, in these passages, in Old Testament covenantal language, we see in the prophecies there mountains pictured over and over again. And what we find in Scripture is contextually, we've touched on this briefly in the past, but let me just reemphasize in the context here that in Scripture, mountains are used to communicate ideas, among them, boundaries, formidable positions of power, high places of worship, and generally, mountains symbolize kingdoms, authorities, high places, places where gods are set up or gods rule or powers are set up or palaces are built and so on. Herod himself built a man-made mountain with what he thought was an impenetrable fortress. Herod himself was destroyed. There is the account, I love it, it's one of my favorites, of judgment in the book of Acts where Herod himself stands up and he really just blows away the people. He captivates them with his articulate speech and his presentation of full power. All of a sudden, worms eat him from the inside out. And it's after, it's a response to the judgment of God to the accolades of the people that said, the voice of a God, the voice of a God. What happened in that instance? I'll tell you what happened. A man who set himself as a false authority on a physical, literal mountain was thrown down the precipice to his own judgmental death by the snap of God's holy fingers. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say like John the Baptist, you are in sin, O king. You should not have taken your brother's wife in marriage. After you deliver that indictment, if God has called you to speak truth to a situation that is evidently sinful, it doesn't matter if they lock you in prison. It doesn't matter if they take your own head. That truth will not return void. And so we see in the Scriptures indictments like the one John the Baptist levied eventually produced coming back to God, not with void, but evidence of His glory, either in repentance or judgment. And these are the kind of mountains God can move. There is no authority, there is no power, there is no high place, there is no idolatrous location that will stand in front of God's militant church. We turn back again a few pages, and there's a promise delivered when God's people stand where they ought on Christ and His Word. He says, Christ says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, verse 18, Matthew 16, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, what part of the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Are you tempted to misunderstand, church? You have the superior authority and allegiance. It doesn't matter the mountain in your way, whatever it represents. No matter how formidable the culture, the power, the authority, who stands up and says, I am a God, I am a God. No matter how many of the populace is connived and deceived into saying, the voice of a God, the voice of a God. This mountain, our wicked culture, will one day be removed and cast into the sea. And on that day, let us be found among those who spoke to it and said, be removed in Jesus' name. Prayed those prayers of faith and declared the Lord Jesus Christ victorious over every Caesar, over every authority, over every false god and imposter, ruler, authority, principality, and the high places that wants to declare himself sovereign over Christ. They are all torn down and placed under his feet until the last enemy becomes his footstool and he rules and reigns 
and us beside Him forevermore. Putting two and two together in this passage, we see even in the deliverance of this young boy, a despoiling of Satan's kingdom. If Satan thought he had anyone, certainly it would have been this young man, not even reasonable enough to hear and respond to the gospel. But there was a despoiling. That means you go in and you strip away everything that represented the authority, the power, and the wealth of that king, of that ruler. And in this example, Christ intervenes as the greater sovereign. He declares himself powerful against the strong man. He routs the enemy's kingdom. And this individual, who the enemy had utterly bound and deceived and had thrown repeatedly at fire and water, Christ delivers by a word of his power. He despoils the enemy's kingdom for everyone he sets his affection upon. And that is the power of Christ's word. And if you're in him today, you've experienced that vanquishing power because Christ has ransomed you. Finally this morning, let's consider sons and taxes. Understanding these post-transfiguration events illustrated by the contextual parallels. Sons and taxes. This is an interesting passage. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. I can't resist but bring you to one more Old Testament passage because when we read it, it imports so much context and so much beauty to this event that might seem like a funny footnote until we read it in covenantal context. First, while you're turning to Exodus 30, let me remind you of Matthew 17:24 and following. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth pay toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, that is Peter responding to Jesus, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast the hook, take out the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now with a little study, we find that this particular tax was not actually levied by the kingdom of Rome, by the imperial Rome, but it was levied originally under the Mosaic Covenant, under the law of God. In Exodus 30, 11, we read a record of the institution of this particular tax. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them and there be no plague among them when you, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Now this is very interesting because again the judgment plagues related to the plight of the pagan Egypt is here recalled and also violation of this very text under the Davidic rule incurred that kind of judgment. But notice what this is. There is a ransom offered, symbolically pictured here, for each man's life as he brings this half shekel or this tax. Each one who is numbered in the census, verse 13, shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less. Then the half shekel, when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So the levy of this tax was not, again, delivered by some quasi-temple authority like an apostate high priest. It was not delivered by a civil government like Rome or Herod or even the, or even the provisional government set up in the intertestamental period by the Maccabees or whoever else was ruling at that particular time. This was a tax levied by God himself under the Mosaic administration with a particular message. It was an atonement offering. It symbolized that a price must be paid to purchase your communion with the Lord. Now that offering didn't have the intrinsic value to do it, but it was symbolically significant. Would there ever be an offering, the faithful Jew would ask, that would be sufficient as an atonement offering to purchase my audience with the favor of the Lord? 
so that this temple with its repeated sacrifices, with its repeated offering, would give way to a once and for all sacrifice that would purchase my eternal audience with the Father? That the veil would one day be rent so that I might have free access without this provisional priesthood into the Holy of Holies? The answer is yes. Yes, through Jesus Christ. Now listen, because the levying authority was God Himself and not a provisional government, Jesus Christ identifies Himself as the Son of God when He says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And in the context then of this levied tax, Jesus is identifying Himself as the Son of the King, as it were. So Jesus in this passage, implicitly reaffirms and echoes what God the Father had already stated of Him. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But more than that, He identifies by analogy the distinction of His station, not just by sonship, but by dynastic sonship. It's a son of a king that makes Christ important in this analogy. Therefore, implicitly again recalling, that this man who is speaking to them this day is the son of David. Praise the Lord. He is the dynastic son in the lineage of David. He is the son of God who is the levying authority of this particular tax. And that's why, ultimately, he was exempt from it. His distinguished identity is that he is the son of man, the son of David, the son of God, the incarnate Messiah, forever and ever, whose kingdom is without end, who will rule and reign at the cost of his blood, but upon his resurrection to demonstrate his surpassing glory, so that all who are in him will one day rule and reign in his kingdom without end. Praise the Lord. Later in this passage, as we close with these two verses in Matthew 17, says, And when he said from others, That is, Peter answering Christ. Jesus said, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. So notice he's going to pay this tax for other reasons. But this is glorious. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Last time we covered this passage, it was in a message title. It's a fitting title for this passage as well. The Condescension of the Glorified Christ. Christ condescends, that is, He reveals Himself to us. He speaks through us, through events like this, through miracles, through the delivery of His Word, through His parables, through His instructions. He speaks to us. And what do we see about the glory of the condescending Christ? Even though He has become a man, even though He has made Himself tangibly evident to us, He has shown Himself glorious in that He has dominion over the fishes of the sea. Last time we were here, we quoted Calvin as saying, He, Jesus, had more extensive dominion than all earthly kings, since He even had fishes for His tributaries. Jesus could say to the fish of the sea, Pay me tax. Sir, yes, sir, answers the gupper, and He spits up a half shekel. So cool. I love the way the Bible reveals, in so many shades of glory, the power of our Almighty God. And though we've just barely scratched the surface in this section, it's my prayer that you and I take away something of the glory of Christ, perhaps we haven't previously considered at this depth, and that this revelation would give us encouragement that would make our neck looser, as you, if you will, that would straighten us out, that would fill us with faith, so we could one day join with the faithful clan of Christ's disciples saying, Jesus is Lord. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, You are so faithful and patient to us. We see the record of Your loving kindness all through Your history of dealings with Your people. We, Lord, among all men, are most privileged, it seems to me, as we have experienced more of your long-suffering and faithfulness in history, as we look back on the record of your providence than any other human being that has lived and died prior to our existence today. So it is a glorious privilege to take this in. 
Lord, we thank you most of all that we are privileged not just to look forward to, but to recall even as we take communion at our regular services here and as we remember the inscripturated truth of your gospel that Christ has come and delivered us. Oh, what amazing grace and manifold glory as here codified for us in your holy scriptures. Let each one of us be freshly moved by the power of your word towards the good works that attend true faith of worshiping and serving your glory through obedience and testifying to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And it's in the holy name of Jesus Christ we pray this morning. Amen.